Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast thing. Uh, this week we have Kevin Allison from the state and from uh, his podcast Risk, which is great. Um, yeah, he talks. He wanted to talk about free to be you and me, which was one of those things that I had only heard of and was not really familiar with the content of. Um, I happened to get it for my birthday. Uh, my girlfriend is awesome, and she got me. Uh, she found this record. She's like, you need to listen to it because, uh, you know, Mel Brooks and the Smothers Brothers or Tom Smothers is on there. And so, you know, naturally I wanted to listen to it and I didn't have a chance until this podcast, this interview gave me uh, the excuse. So I listened to it and it's very cute. Uh, and that's not to diminish it in any way. Um, it actually clearly me meant a lot to, to Kevin and I can see why. Uh, it's very, very wonderful. Like, it's very sweet, and it's actually quite funny. Uh, it's, it's you know, pretty good for, for kids to listen to. It's of a certain era, I guess, is, is, is the thing that you, you might want to be prepared for, because it might seem a little sweet, a little too treacly, um, but there's a really good message deep down in, inside of it, and I, I like it a lot. And in case you don't know, Risk just became part of uh, Jesse Thorne's Maximum Fun, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great thing for the podcast and it's a great thing for them, uh, at Maximum Fun because it's really, it's just a wonderful podcast to listen to. So please check it out. Um, also please, uh, if you would go to jasonklom.com or just go to YouTube slash jklom, that's K-L-A-M-M, and watch Looking Forward. It's my first feature film. It's a mock documentary. It's political satire. I have been working on it for literally eight years, and I just finished it last week. I think it's quite funny. Uh, there's some great stuff in it. It's all improvised, and some of my favorite actors are in it, and um, including Jeremy Guskin, regular Comedy on Vinyl guest Jeremy Guskin. So, uh, yeah, please check that out. Check out Risk and subscribe to it. Check out, you know, please subscribe to us if you haven't already. Rate us highly. Comments, all that good stuff. And the same for Risk, please. Um... And, yeah, thank you very much, and enjoy this episode. Hi! Hi! I'm a baby! What do you think I am, a loaf of bread? You could be! Why do I know? I'm just born, I'm a baby! I don't even know if I'm under a tree or in a hospital or what! I'm just so glad to be here! Well, I'm a baby, too. Have it your own way. I don't want to fight about it. What, are you scared? Yes, I am. I'm a little scared. I'll tell you why. See, I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl yet. What's that got to do with it? Well, if you're a boy and I'm a girl, you can beat me up. You think I want to lose a tooth my first day alive? What's a tooth? Search me. I'm just born. I'm a baby. I don't know nothing yet. You think you're a girl? I don't know. I might be. I think I am. I've never been anything before. Let me see. Let me take a little look around. Mm, cute feet, small, dainty. Yep, yep. I'm a girl. That's it. Girl time. What do you think I am? You? That's easy. You're a boy. You sure? Of course I'm sure. I'm alive already four or five minutes, right? I haven't been wrong yet. Gee, I don't feel like a boy. That's because you can't see yourself. Why? What do I look like? Bald. You're bald, fella. Bald, bald, bald. You're bald as a ping-pong ball. Are you bald? So? So? Boys are bald and girls have hair. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. Who's bald? Your mother or your father? My father. I rest my case. Hmm. You're bald, too. You're kidding. No, I'm you're... not. Don't look. Why? Oh, a bald girl. Yuck. Disgusting. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Comedy on Vinyl. Uh, this week, I'm lucky enough to be sitting here with Kevin Allison. Hello. So you wanted to talk about Free to Be You and Me, at least initially. That's what you want to talk about. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I should start at the very beginning, mm -hmm. and that is that uh, when, I was a, when I was a really little kid, about, you know, two or three years old, I was 
becoming conscious of the fact that I was gay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, that might sound really strange. No. But, but it really freaks me out when people say, oh, kids don't know anything about sexuality. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, well... I sure did. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was. Well, I mean, in the early years, it was, it was just as much about like, oh, I'm, I like boys, like mm. physically, and yada yada, and I know that makes me different. Right. So that was mixed with a typical gay kid's realizations that most gay kids, I think, well, not most, but a lot are. are knowing that they're creative and artistic mm. and maybe a little bit sensitive and blah, 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 blah. Right. So uh, what happened was I kind of became the black sheep of a large family. Okay. Five kids. I was the middle kid and I was the classic middle kid. The kid who goes off into his own universe, uh -huh. feels like he's a little bit different, spends a lot of time fantasizing. And what everyone began to understand was mm. that Kevin is if you want to calm him down or do or just you know get rid of him or yeah. just deal with him put him in front of a record player and my my relatives would joke uh -huh. they would they would say the whole family would come over you would walk in the door, go directly to the record player, sit down, not deal with anyone else <laughs> the rest of the weekend. Oh my God. Just be in front. And, and I would also steal uh, relatives' records <laughs> when I could, in the, you know, which is really hard because they're yeah. so big. Yeah. But it's so funny because years later I learned that, uh, you know, Dylan used mm -hmm. to do that. Like really? when, when he first came to New York, people would just consistently find their records missing whenever he was over. That's so funny. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so records were by far and away my first obsession, my first passion. I loved watching them spin around. Mm -hmm. I loved the whole, like, there was something spiritual about the idea that in these black grooves, there's something happening. There's yeah. like a world that opens up when that needle travels in these like just black grooves. It's kind of like, uh, uh, like, like it, it, it's, it's as if like a record is kind of a physical manifestation of the unconscious. You know, yeah. you put a needle on there and it's like putting a boat out to sea, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so uh, I was just obsessed with it. And my parent, you know, my f I was very lucky that my family was into various kinds of music. Okay. My father was obsessed with opera. Mm -hmm. uh, my older brothers were big into prog rock. Uh -huh. uh, my sister was into, like, uh, the folk 70s stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was exposed to lots of different kinds of music. But when I was... Oh, eight years old. When mm -hmm. I was eight years old, I was first allowed to walk from my house mm -hmm. to the library. Yeah. And the library was, um, oh, it was, it was, you know, maybe six blocks away. Mm -hmm. So for an eight-year-old kid, yeah. that's kind of a venture. And uh, I, I went in there and they had, it was so funny, they had like a little rack 
by the checkout mm-hmm. uh, featuring several albums that you might be interested in. Yeah. Which is so funny to me because it's kind of like, you know, how you go to a deli today and they're like, <laughs> you might also want some five-hour energy drink. <laughs> right, right. But there at the Westwood Public Library, it was like, you might also want free to be you and me. And that was the first time I got something out of the library. I saw this pink album pinkish album with this these cartoonish characters on front and it just looked very colorful and very fun and very like what's going on here and there's a big list of all these people that contributed to the album on the front cover yeah and it just looked like oh this just looks like fun and interesting so i brought it home and free to be you and me is I don't know. Let's see. I'm, I'm actually looking at. You've got a copy of it right here. Um, it's probably it's 1972. Mm-hmm. So this album, I di- I had no consciousness of this at the time. But what it's really all about is the women's movement. What it's sure. really about is Ms. Magazine had just started up, uh-huh. and I think Gloria Steinem uh, gave Marlo Thomas uh, the go-ahead to create an album to teach children mm-hmm. that gender roles are not all you think they are. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And so I never even put together as a kid that all the sketches and songs on this album mm-hmm. kind of hit the same idea yeah. over and over. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. as a kid, you're just like, oh! it's another really fun story. And then years later, you're like, oh, I was being indoctrinated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listening to it, because I listened to it on the way over here for Uh the first time, uh, not that I have a portable record player, I did rip it first, Um, but I I listened to it and uh, realized this is the stuff that I was raised on 100% without question. Like, whether my mother, the zeitgeist of this clearly seeped into my mother's brain, and she was like, it's okay to cry, you can buy a doll. You know, there's all these little things that are, you know. Oh, yeah. And I was like a super sensitive little kid, too. And, uh, you know, and I was like, holy shit. Like, it really just, it amplified something or was a result of something that was very amplified at the time. Yeah, well, there's something kind of cool about that, that, that... I was not really raised on those principles. Right, right. And my parents were more like 1950s uh, Catholics. Yeah. And so it's kind of cool that I sought it out and found it myself. Yeah, yeah you that's know? amazing. Um, yeah, it, I, the first song is super, super groovy. It's mm-hmm. very... Um, it's very, oh, I don't know, I, I think of along the terms of, like, the staple singers, uh-huh, uh-huh. that kind of groovy kind of, like, soul music that was happening in the 70s, which I still adore. Sure. I still love that kind of stuff, uh, like big, heavy, thumpy bass and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. You would also hear that kind of music a lot on on uh, Sesame Street or The Electric Company, yeah. which I also loved, and which also featured a lot of this kind of, you know, uh, teaching you, you know, uh, to change chill out about sure uh, so uh, and but the first the thing that really made an impression is the second piece on the album which is a sketch mm-hmm. a comedy sketch between marlo thomas and uh mel brooks <laughs> and 
you know, now I do podcasting. Now I do uh, my show Risk, and um, we do both live stories, Mm -hmm. stories told at our live shows, and we do radio-style stories. And all these years later, I feel like I've come home now that I'm doing podcasting because I'll be editing someone's radio-style story Mm -hmm. and realize I am just in love with the human voice. Yeah. Mel Brooks' voice so on that in that sketch yeah. is just a thing of beauty. It's yeah. so wonderful, mm-hmm. so colorful. And of course, now I know that oh, he made a lot of record albums before. Right. You know, there is something about doing sketch comedy, or, or I guess any kind of comedy, you know, where there is no live audience, but it's just you being recorded. Mm-hmm. You just have um. Uh, an appreciation that all you're doing, all your being is heard, not seen. Yeah. And so you put a little something extra into the musicality and the, uh, you know, the, you're, you're kind of the way you have to raise your eyebrows and stuff like that mm-hmm. with your voice. Right, right. And so sketch comedy on records ends up being a little bit more i don't know magical even a little bit more intimate even Uh than it does tend to be on like tv for example and so yeah that first sketch is really kind of a classic it's really a great sketch and a lot of people remember it a lot of comedians i talk to remember it it's marlo thomas and mel brooks are both babies and they're sitting in the hospital and they're waiting to be picked up Mm -hmm. and they're arguing over who's a boy and who's a girl (laughs) and they can't tell because they have all of these preferences you know uh and and they're very ridiculous preferences like uh like his are of course very kind of jewish old man preferences Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but they're confused because he likes some things that are very fey and Mm -hmm. she likes some things that are very butch and so it's it really kicks off the album by getting across this idea you know what people say a boy should be or a girl should be you've got to learn to screw that and that and then the rest of the album goes off from there and maybe it is and maybe it isn't and maybe it does what they say it will do but i'll tell you one thing i know is true the lady we see when we're watching tv the lady who smiles as she scours or scrubs or rubs or washes or wipes or mops or dusts or cleans or whatever she does on our tv screens That lady is smiling because she's an actress and she's earning money for learning those speeches that mention those wonderful soaps and detergents and cleansers and cleaners and powders and pastes and waxes and bleaches. So, the very next time you happen to be just sitting there quietly watching TV and you see some nice lady who smiles as she scours or scrubs or rubs or washes or wipes or mops or dusts or cleans. Remember, nobody smiles doing housework but those ladies you see on TV. Your mommy hates housework. Your daddy hates housework. I hate housework, too. And when you grow up, so will you. Because even if the soap or detergent or cleanser or cleaner or powder or paste or wax or bleach that you use is the very best one, housework is just no fun. And I fell in love immediately with this record at at the age of eight and just listened to it over and over and over again. And there's, there's a 
story told by Alan Alda, yes. and uh, who also has a great voice, mm-hmm. and Marlo Thomas, and it's kind of a, it's a revisiting of the uh, of the. Uh, old Greek myth of Atalanta. Yeah. And that's really uh, memorable. And there's the song, uh, It's All Right to Cry. Yep. It's just very memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, gosh, it's just got so many fun sketches. Shel Silverstein does a little bit mm-hmm. on it. Carol Channing, I think. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's just loaded with, with uh, colorful, fun stuff. And it really made an impression on me. And I guess it probably first put in my head, hey, I can record stuff. Because mm-hmm. by the time I was in the sixth grade, I think, I had a Radio Shack tape recorder and started creating my own stuff just like on Free to Be You and Me. Awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. So good. So that's your beginning of sketch, huh? Yeah, and and you know that, and of course the Electric Company and sure. Sesame Street and the Muppet Show. I mean, really, technically, I was exposed to Python mm-hmm. uh, when I was seven. Okay. So that even preceded my finding Free to Be You and Me. I think uh-huh. uh, uh, my brothers uh, would sometimes watch movies late at night. Uh-huh. And I remember one time they were like, oh, you got to see this, you got to see this, you got to see this. And it was um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh And the theme of that song kicks in at the beginning of that movie, and it scared me. You know, at the age of seven, you hear that. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, to me, that was like horror movie music. Uh And the fact that my older brothers liked it so much and they were kind of like, you got to see this, I didn't trust it. I thought that they were trying to traumatize me. So, like, months later, they're like, oh, you got to see this, you got to see this, you got to see this. It's 11 p.m. at Mm -hmm. night. And it's the Holy Grail. And that starts, I don't know if you remember, but with... Like a huge, and I was like, "Oh no, I can't watch it! I can't watch it! I can't!" I was terrified. And they're like, "No, Kevin, it's not as bad as the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just chill out and watch." And I, Monty Python and the Holy Grail at the age of seven was truly a revelation. I had never seen. Um, people being that absurd. You know, I had never seen adults acting that out of their minds. (laughs) Like throwing giant rabbits around, Mm -hmm. um, having arguments about, uh, you know, clanking coconuts and stuff like that. To me, as a kid, I was like, wow, these guys are brilliantly silly. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that made a huge impression, too. So, yeah, so a conglomeration of an early, a very early exposure to Python, Mm -hmm. plus constant exposure to this kind of like free to be you and me, Muppets, Sesame Streets, all that kind of stuff. And years later, we in the state would acknowledge that especially David Wayne, Uh especially David Wayne's writing Uh was just like pure Sesame Street. Yeah, yeah. There are sketches that tip our hats to it, like sure. the, the sketch Eating Muppets. <laughs> yeah. 
But then there are sketches that keep it a little bit, you know, like don't don't say where this is coming from, like David's sketch and uh-huh. I don't know if you remember it's a sketch where David and I are writers at Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. And David says to me, you know, we're we're having trouble writing some articles and David says, Hey, could you um could you get me a, a bagel? And then he doesn't know what else to say. He wants to order something else, but he doesn't know what else to say. Uh-huh. And he's like, what's that? What's the, how, do, how would I say a bagel? And I'm like, do you mean and a cup of coffee? He's like, and? What is this? And? And so the whole sketch is about David, me teaching David what the word and means. And David just being liberated by having discovered that he can add things together in a sentence with the word and. And it's pure Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it features... Alice Cooper. <laughs> At one point, David's walking down the street just naming things. He's mm-hmm. like, and a telephone pole, and a mailbox, and Alice Cooper. <laughs> That's right. Holy shit. Good God. So, but, all right, so how old were you when you guys started the state as a, as a thing, period? The state started um, in 88. Okay. When I was 18 years old, and I um, was not a member of the group at first. Mm-hmm. I uh, when I came to NYU, I was desperate to have sex with guys because <laughs> I had come from Cincinnati, Ohio, and oh, um, yeah. and it's like it's not like homosexuality doesn't exist there. It's sure. kind of like sexuality <laughs> does not exist there. It's a very like Republican town. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, even though my parents were politically liberal, uh, they were still very very. Uh, well, at least my mother was very kind of puritanical when it came to anything sexual. Okay. So, like, for example, sexual. He, speaking of, like, music, mm-hmm. in 1982, the song Sexual Healing was, uh, like, number one. Mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye was having his big comeback. And uh, my mom sat myself and my sister down one day, and she said, when that song comes on the radio, the radio goes off. Oh my god. And so I remember sitting there thinking, oh, it's going to be a while before I'm able to come out to the closet uh, yeah, to her. Yeah. <laughs> but when I got to uh, NYU uh, when I was 18, so I was super horny and mm-hmm. I remember I saw Joe Latrulio in the hallways of the Tisch School of the Arts and I was like, I like that guy. <laughs> and of course, it was weird because Back then, we didn't have all of these social things like, you know, like uh, apps for hooking up with guys sure. or even even in college in those days, there weren't quite as many like gay clubs uh-huh. or, or even like a gay bar down the street that all the, the college kids would go to, that sort yeah. of thing. So, so I... I figured I, things were just like in high school, where mm-hmm. you were just supposed to assume everyone was straight uh-huh. and just hope for the best, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like oh if you're God. attracted to someone. Um, so I decided to, to kind of start stalking Joe Latrulio, <laughs> and I once saw that he was doing a drop ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw that he was dropping a class and adding a class, and I was like, I'm going to sit there in the counselor's office eavesdrop on him see if i can find out what class he's adding and then get added into it and i did precisely that so it's originally just this really creepy weird like like you you know like terribly shy gay boy like Mm -hmm. trying to get closer to this other guy Mm -hmm. 
But it all changed immediately. Like, my pursuit of Joe just went out the window when something much more important happened. One day in class, now that I was in his class, uh-huh. he said, my comedy group is doing a show tonight. Everyone's invited. And he handed out flyers to everyone in the yeah. class. I came to see the show. The group was called The New Group. Mm-hmm. And Todd Hollebeck had started the group. There was an official NYU comedy group at that time. Uh-huh. And Todd Hollebeck thought, eh, why shouldn't there be another one even without the school's blessing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So he put up flyers saying, who wants to audition for a new group? And it, the group just became, just called itself that. Mm-hmm. And the strangest thing in the world it you, you know it's like evidence that the universe has some sort of intelligence working mm-hmm. the original lineup of whatever it was 10 or 11 people mm-hmm. um stayed pretty much the same wow and out of just a pure random auditioning process uh-huh. and i was there that first night for that first show it was called i'm rubber your glue <laughs> and it was electric. Mm-hmm. It was one of those evenings in your life where you see something and you feel like deja vu. You mm-hmm. feel like, oh, I feel like I recognize this as already being classic. Mm-hmm. Like almost like awesome. watching that Monty Python movie yeah. at, at when I was seven years old. Like, oh my gosh, this is amazing and has always been amazing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, And the audience all felt like this group was just spectacular. Mm -hmm. And the group clearly felt it, too. So I thought, I want to get into that group. So I started hanging out with, you know, I started being like, hey, Joe, where are you guys hanging out tonight? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. Started hanging out with the group. And there was one night in particular where I decided to do a little bit of a coming out of the closet as funny sort Uh of thing with the group. We were at um, at a bar. Uh, called the Dugout on on Second Avenue in in New York. Really, really a terrible little dive bar. Just a mess of a place. And I went into the bathroom. It was freezing cold, and there was like an inch of water on the bathroom floor. But I th- I thought I'm gonna like take all my clothes off <laughs> and head out into this bar in in public in public in New York City. So I took off all my clothes except for my boots. And I improvised a little wailing song oh, as I came out of the bathroom. And I remember the, I remember the first line of the song, because everyone in the group remembers this. It was, um, oh, standing in an inch of urine well becomes the sailing man. <laughs> and I'm raising a glass. And everyone in the bar is like, what the fuck is going on? And, and, and the guys in the group were like, holy shit, this guy's funny. <laughs> So that was the beginning of my becoming a part of the group. Agatha Fry, she made a pie, and Christopher John helped bake it. Christopher John, he mowed the lawn, and Agatha Fry helped rake it. Now Zachary Zug took out the rug, and Jennifer Joy helped shake it. And Jennifer Joy, she made a toy And Zachary Zug helped break it And some kind of help is the kind of help That helping's all about And some kind of help is the kind of help We all can do without there, There's, I mean, that, that, that says something to the power of 
comedy in general. It, 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 it engenders in you a, a, a desire to be so incredibly free with yourself, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I always associated comedy... And to a fault. Mm -hmm. At first, it was a good thing, like in that instance. Sure. But it became a flaw of mine to associate being funny with coming out. Because Uh when I was a kid, I felt like such a freak for being gay, for Uh liking boys. And I felt like, okay... No one will love me anymore. I'll lose all my friends and yada, yada, yada uh-huh. if they ever find out about this thing at my core. Yeah. So I'm weird. So I'm a freak. But I still want to let it out. I still want yeah. to, like, express it somehow. So it started to express itself as weird, bizarre funniness, like that wailing tune. Yeah. And the reason I say it became a flaw is because... It, I always thought of it at being funny in those Jekyll and Hyde terms. Like, Hyde's going to pop out for a little while. Whereas, years later, I learned from uh, all the... Who became our friends, Amy and uh, Matt Besser and all the UCB guys, mm-hmm. that you have to commit to the bit. Right. You can't right. just come out and sing a couple lines of a wailing tune. Then you have to be the whaler, right. and he's got to have a deal. You've got to start making it real. Right. I just got used to this whole thing of, okay, every now and then I'll be a complete lunatic yeah. for a moment or two. And that does not comedy make. Right. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, that actually ended up hurting me That's once the state was on MTV. I, 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 I had this real fear of commitment uh-huh. to bits. That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that from anybody. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's it's not a thing that shows because as a group, you guys are very cohesive. Obviously, it just it still hurts my brain that you guys were that young on him. You know that you have your own show that young, and I, you know. Uh, myself at that age was was still in in college and just just like you know you compare yourself to to, to the things that you love like 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 the state and uh I, I guess i don't know how anybody keeps themselves together long enough to even put together a show at that age well we were all dear friends you know we were all we all became very much like a family and when i say like a family i mean like the whole kit and caboodle, mm-hmm. meaning lots of tension. Sure. Lots of... Um, I mean, the rivalry was just through the roof. Yeah. Because there were 11 of us. And we kind of insisted that we remain 11 for the longest time because it had been an organic thing. And yeah. we felt like th- there was this magic chemistry, and we didn't want to fuck with it. Right. Uh, and we knew that the industry, that that executives and all, would want to. In fact, the biggest battle we ever fought with MTV, the reason it took so long for us to get greenlit on the first six episodes, was that um, they wanted to own the name The State ah. so that they could fire us all and just replace us, you know, right, with whoever. To, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, was this, and I'm not going to assume it is, is this the first time you made friends over comedy? Because this is one thing we talk about on the show a lot, where people will sit down with an album with somebody like, and we talk about it a lot because I made my best friend doing that, listening to albums together. I don't know if that's something that you share, if you ever had that. Or I not. cannot say that because, you know, like I said, we, we kind of skipped ahead. After, yeah. when I was in the sixth grade... I started making my own comedy on Radio Shack tape recorders. Yeah. 
And at first it was phone pranks, mm-hmm. uh, which was just a blast, sure. you know, uh, just calling people in. And I was not even very good at impressions or anything right. like that. It was just clearly, you know, just a little kid being a total asshole. <laughs> um, but so there were like, me and my friends would do lots of phone pranks and record them. Mm-hmm. And, but it eventually became doing comedy sketches. And then the masterpiece, the biggest undertaking was in the seventh grade, I made a half hour radio drama uh-huh. called, well, it was really a radio horror comedy called, uh, I was a teenage doorknob. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a half hour long uh-huh. and it's kind of a musical and it's the story of uh, I don't know what happens or why but but this family have a child who catches some sort of virus or something and becomes a doorknob and when and and then this when he's exposed to other people they too might become doorknobs and all the doorknobs seem to do is say shit that's amazing oh that's perfect i would listen to that yeah oh it's still it's still fun yeah i have a i have a um very meticulously edited meticulously for that period which means you can hear every cut it's like um it's a thing called Allison Recordings Greatest Hits or something like uh-huh. that, which is like a 90-minute cassette of all my favorite Holy stuff. Shit. One side is I was a teenage doorknob, mm-hmm. and the other side is mostly pranks and songs. That's amazing. Yeah. Holy crap. Um, so, so it was mostly, I mean... You made more friends making comedy then? Yeah, actually, yes. I I started a little drama club in the sixth grade called The Gym Shoes. Mm -hmm. And we were going to perform at nursing homes and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But really, we just ended up getting together and listening to records, Uh you know. Mostly at that point, like Broadway stuff. Because shortly after Free to Be You and Me, I started discovering... You know, like West Side Story and other records like that at the library and became really uh, fascinated by that. I became completely obsessed with Broadway musicals when I was was 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to me now because I... I I think Broadway itself changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the music became more pop based you know less less like tin pan alley and a lot more oh, i don't know whatever it is now it just it, and now broadway just makes me cringe yeah, yeah i bet i bet that's why there's so many throwbacks uh, yeah. i feel like to make people a little happier yeah um do you um, let me just actually pull this up because again i i'm lucky i have this mostly destroyed copy uh, just because I was given this as a, as a gift, and I was given this as a gift because mostly because Tom Smothers and Mel Brooks are on there. Um, the uh, I'm trying to think. There was a there isn't was a bit Dick on Cavett here. also Dick Cavett on there? is yeah. also on here. My dog is a plumber. Is the name? Yeah, of the yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, just, it's just so damn good. And even the one, it, it is very like you said. It is sort of very indoctrinating. Um, but I mean, Carol Channing does this whole bit about, uh, you know, how commercials lie to you. I was like, this is, I don't know. I feel like this is the kind of thing that could be redone in, in a certain way. 
because this this seems like the low end of, the, of of stuff of the period that was like this. It was kind of got blown out of proportion. Later. It's fine being happy with yourself. This is a great message, wonderful message. But that became a thing that anybody could just put together. Yeah, you know, where yeah. this seems very genuine and very sincere and very lovely. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And it's got good comedic bits in it. You don't really find that anymore. Well, I think that it's so, like, one of the things about sketch comedy, and this record is more or less a sketch and musical comedy record, Free to Be You and Me, um, is that when it comes together, it comes together, and when it doesn't, it doesn't. And it usually has everything to do with how uh, the chemistry of the people involved, you know? I think that one of the reasons people have such mixed feelings about Saturday Night Live, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on, you know, what cast or era you're talking about, is there are periods in Saturday Night Live's history where, you know, the writers weren't even talking to the actors. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's just such a hierarchy and there's such a institutionalization of the way that they run that show Mm -hmm. that I think now we're at a period where there's a lot of relations between the writers and the actors, you know, it seems like there's a lot of collaboration going on there. And I think that that makes things so much better. Sure. Um, The state, yeah. Like one of the reasons we were so strong and that I think like say kids in the hall and Mr. Show were so strong Mm -hmm. is that, the people who were doing the writing were also doing the acting and the directing and producing and, and even editing and directing. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that does sort of speak to the success of new media, you know, now and yes. you know, because that's what we have to do to get this shit made. Absolutely. Is do Absolutely. It ourselves, and we wouldn't get anything done if it wasn't for the collaboration, if it wasn't for people like you being willing to come on something like this. Oh my know? gosh. You know, when Patton got up, when uh, Patton Oswalt, when he got up at the, um, uh, whatever the the Montreal the last keynote yes. g- that he gave about how he was just basically telling the industry you have to be very careful and take a very good look at what's happening here right. with all of this podcasting and YouTubing and all that kind of stuff that's happening because we're showing that we can do this without you. Yeah. And it would be better if if instead you kind of came down off your pedestal a little <laughs> bit and tried to start working with us a little bit more. Right. And he was giving the opposite lesson to our to us, yeah. saying it would be better if you stopped looking at the industry as your enemy and started looking at them as you can teach them right that hey you can already do this stuff you've proven you can do it and so maybe you can like find a way to be a little bit more hey we could do it this way it's all right to cry Crying gets the sad out of you It's alright to cry It might make you feel better Rain drop from your eyes Washing all the mad out of you Rain drops from your eyes It's gonna make you feel better It's alright to feel things Though the feelings may be strange 
Because really that, after the state broke up, I am one of the, you know, accidents of the industry. I, I, you know, am one of those people who doesn't quite have a look, I guess, that is super appealing to, you know, like a mass demographic. There are elements of my personality that are maybe a little weird or, or just don't quite translate, you know, so that I'd be a, an ideal guy to have on friends. Uh-huh. Um, and so for 12 years, I auditioned and auditioned and auditioned. And frankly, I don't think I'm good at auditioning. I right. think there's something about the energy in the audition room that just throws me off every time. I bet, yeah. Um, So I got lost. I got very, very... I fell off the face of the earth Mm -hmm. and wasn't even sure how to express myself on stage for many years after Uh the group broke up. And what it was was outside of this womb, this group that was... Uh, kind of a, you know, you can always fend for yourself much easier when you're in a group. Sure. Then when we broke up, I had been in the group the same thing I had been in my family. Uh The black sheep, the guy in his own universe, the gay one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And being the gay one, I wasn't hanging out socially with the group as much as everyone else in the group was because I was going out to get laid. Right, right. Um, And so... I wasn't as clickish as some of the other members of the group, and that really hurt me because okay. years later, uh, the click that was uh, like the Stella guys, mm-hmm. they had their thing, and the click that was the Reno 911 guys, they had their thing. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I had kind of built my relations with the group such that I was going to be off on my own, you know? Right. So. I was very hurt and very isolated and very just did not handle the breakup of the group very well. I should have stayed very, very social. I should have come down off my own horse and and should have actually been taking classes at UCB right after getting off of the state. That's one thing I encourage people all the time now is... Education never ends. Right. There are, there are so many New York storytellers mm-hmm. who should be taking my class. Yeah. yeah. I book them on my show and I'm like, wow, I can't get over the extent to which you are very established in the New York storytelling scene mm-hmm. and the extent to which you need a lot of coaching uh-huh. on how to tell a story. Right. And it's like... There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I'm still the reason I teach is because I'm still learning myself, sure. and would would be very happy to be continue taking classes in anything. I started taking improv classes at the Pit, the People's Improv Theater, in 2007 because I became the artistic director uh-huh. and I had never taken improv classes before. Holy cow. And here I was, and people are like, what are you doing here? You're a part of a comedy legend, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, you never stop learning. It's always worth jumping into a workshop environment or at least an environment where you can get real feedback from peers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, because a lot of times at the comedy clubs, when you get up and do something and there are other comedians there, you can't necessarily count on nitty gritty feedback from your peers in that, you know, at, at a bar after a show, you know? Right. Of course. Whereas in a workshop, you can't. So wait, I forget. Where were we? <laughs> How did I go off well, on we this on tangent? The media at one point, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. We're almost at the 45 minute mark. I don't, oh. don't want to keep you. Okay. Great. Great. But, great. I, I, but I do want to make sure that we talk about, uh, you know, well, oh, you, you did bring up that you wanted to talk about the, the state album for a little bit. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, um, <laughs> the state, just before the breakup, we got a recording contract with Warner Brothers Records. Mm-hmm. And it was for a, a record that became, <clears throat> excuse me, it became called comedy for gracious living (laughs) and the whole record album design was kind of as if it was a 1950s record and the sketch we we recorded it in the bahamas really and it was at a very strange period because we had just been fired by cbs Mm -hmm. so we were watching our career begin to implode Mm -hmm. and we were drunk the entire week that we were in the Bahamas. We were recording this at the studio that Bob Marley and the Talking Heads, and, like, there were a lot of, like, albums on the... the, I think the Stones had been there at one point. Mm -hmm. So it was quite the place, and it was a place to basically be partying just as much as, as recording stuff. Yeah. So most of the actual recording is happening in the middle of the night, you know, because we would wake up at like one in the afternoon uh-huh. and we, you can hear the the ice cubes clinking in our glasses the whole time. Some of the sketches are improvised, which is really funny oh, because none of us had improvised training. Yeah. We had no, you know, like knowledge of yes and and yada, 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 any of the principles of improv. So it's hilarious that we're doing this stuff off the cuff and it's, it's, it devolves into total absurdity mm-hmm. immediately. Because, uh, you know, like one of the things they say in, in improv is, don't make someone insane because then you've got nowhere to go. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and our characters on the album become insane immediately. <laughs> um, but it was a breakthrough for me. Mm-hmm. Because here I was all of a sudden back in this format mm-hmm. that I had been so used to as a child. Awesome. So I wrote a song called The Animal Song, which was a big hit on the album. I did a monologue, uh, which is a coach um, who comes in to scream at his high school boys football team mm-hmm. uh, during the uh, during the halftime, mm-hmm. and it was also so here on an uncensored album. It was a chance for Kevin to be completely gay in uh-huh. the most like in your face crazy way. <laughs> oh so God. this high school football coach is screaming at these kids, and you think it's all going to be. That was a terrible first half of a game. Sure. But what it really devolves into is, I want to lick all of your asses. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy cow. All right, now. Oh. So Warner Brothers eventually just was not interested in releasing this album because it was really too much. Wow. You know, they thought that, okay, this is 
too crazy at this particular point in time, and this group no longer even has a show, right. so we're not putting it out. Now, I think it was it was. I hope I'm right about this. Was it Rhino or Gosh? Is it, there, one of those labels that puts out, you know, kind of like. Um, uh, important stuff that you might have forgotten about sure. has put the record out. Okay. So you can get it on Amazon. I'm not sure if you can get it on iTunes, mm-hmm. but look it up. It's Comedy for Gracious Living. Okay. And it's a mixed bag, as mm-hmm. most sketch comedy tends to be. Sure. But there are moments in it that are just ridiculously out of this That's world. amazing. Yeah. And it should have been a cue to me. It, you know, it took me until 2009 uh-huh. to realize, oh, I can be doing audio stuff mm-hmm. on a regular basis on my own and be putting it out to the entire world. Yeah, yeah. That changed my life. That's I have awesome. a career again because right. of this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And A, your podcast is, is wonderful. And B, let's make sure we just plug the shit out of everything. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Risk, the whole deal with Risk is it's a show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So early on, it was a lot of stories about I pooped my pants or I was stuck in this strange BDSM situation I didn't expect to (laughs) get into. Um, But over time, Mm -hmm. people started, the fans were like, oh my gosh, this is a podcast where people can tell stories that they wouldn't ordinarily share in mixed company. And there's something profoundly cathartic about it. People are saying stuff on this show that they'd never say on This American Life or The Moth. Right, right, right. So there's this raw like anything goes quality to risk. And some people have come on and shared about, Oh, I was molested when I was five or, Oh my God, my sister just overdosed over on cocaine. And so an episode of risk can be hilariously funny Mm -hmm. one moment. And then 10 minutes later, you're sobbing your eyes out and fans have come to love it for that. They're like, this show is truly radical in that it's going places emotionally that most comedy does not dare to venture into. Yeah. Some of it is flat out not comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I really feel like we're doing some groundbreaking stuff on the show. And it's just like we've, we're, we're over 100 episodes in now. So lots of amazing stories from people like... Janine Garofalo and Sarah Silverman and Mark Marin, mm-hmm. but also just from ordinary people who take my storytelling classes. Right. And those I teach now at my own school that you can find at thestorystudio.org. Awesome. And now your podcast is part of the Maximum Fun Network? Yes, we're with Maximum Fun. You can find that at MaximumFun.org or just the regular Risk site is Risk-Show.com. And, of course, the episodes are free on iTunes. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, Everybody, obviously, listen to Kevin's podcast. Uh, Take his classes if if you're in New York. And uh, subscribe on iTunes and all that good stuff. And, as usual, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate us highly, and write your reviews. 
You can follow us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl and Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl. Come with me where the children are free. Come with me, take my hand.